0: Welcome to Alternative Black, a show where I discuss the decay of capitalism, far-right violence, and what it will take to create our vision for a better world. Today, I am in the studio with a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah. Um, hey, everyone. Um, my name's Sam. Uh, I don't really know what information is important to include when I'm introducing myself. I'm an anarchist. Uh, I've you know, done some organizing stuff, I guess. I I, I don't know what else is important. The topic we're covering today is complexity theory, um, which is a a sort of like approach to science that uses nonlinear dynamics. Um, And my master's that I'm currently in, the field is based in systems theory, which is one of the progenitors of complexity theory. Um, just came first. Um, so systems sort of looks at like systems of things that like interlock and, and interact with each other. And complexity is, is about bringing in like chaos and like network theory, um, and, and starting to look at like the way that those dynamics can change and shift when you add in a lot more variables.
0: Okay. So you, earlier when we were speaking, you referred to complexity theory as sort of the theory of everything can you uh, expand upon that a little bit what you mean right well it's a theory of
1: everything um and so sort of what complexity theory is trying to do is to take a totally different look at science and at the world than linear systems do um so you know um my part of my background is in psychology and psychology is a classic example of like a field that uses linear science. They'll set up an experiment, they'll you know, set aside their variables, they'll account for everything they can and they'll run this experiment with a control and an experimental group. And then they'll say, "Hey, we have results and like we're bringing this back out there and we're saying, "Hey, these results are like applicable to the world." And of course, they aren't. And and that's partly why linear sciences like psychology have a replication problem is because they're not accounting for all those additional variables. They're, they're trying to, to take information and people out of the systems that they interact in and say that they are testing outside of that when there's so much more going on um, that linear experiments really are a snapshot of data and of information and complexity is about okay well let's bring in all of that other stuff let's not try to do our closed experiments let's try to capture things as close to real life as
0: possible and also saying yeah we don't know everything i think that's very interesting because one thing um a lot of sciences a lot of people think of science as being something that's infallible mm-hmm. and human beings these systems that we've created for understanding the world, these tools and methods we've created for understanding the world as something that is not only the best we have, but something that should be trusted almost without question at times, I think, which is obviously unscientific in and of itself to take that approach in the first place. But it's very interesting to me that it seems that complexity theory is trying to tackle modeling the world Outside of a vacuum, like a lot of fields of study will try and do it in a lab setting where you are controlling for all of these different things and trying to get this very isolated result when obviously a lot of the times that does not translate over to a real world outcome or a particularly accurate portrayal of how things work in the real world.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good summary, a good way of looking at it and and part of what makes complexity so compelling of an approach is because it sort of was the nexus of a lot of different fields finally coming together and talking to each other because this was just sort of like where science had been going for a long time in different fields and because it's, it stresses interconnectivity when they started connecting the dots like it started to make sense when like you know different people were working on like biologists we're working with physicists we're working with like sociologists we're working with linguistics etc um so and com- yeah complexity is is modeling things on difficult to predict factors and a lot some of the models use complexity science that people would be familiar with in their everyday lives. So like weather systems, um, are, are modeling complexity. So, you know, making a certain prediction for the weather, um, you know, prediction engines for political, um, chaos or political things happening. Um prediction models for like hurricanes and where they're going are all modeled off of complexity. And that's partly why they look at things and say, oh, well, there's certain percentage probabilities of all of these different things happening, but we can't really say for sure.
0: So where did complexity theory start? What field of study did it originate from? That's a really interesting question
1: because if you go all the way back to the origins of systems theory. Um, there's a type of, of system theory called cybernetics which was in large part pioneered by the US Army um, and this came out of a need it, it was very math based originally and I'm not an expert on the math stuff but there have continued to be like you know people working on the math um, anyway the the army pioneered this field of study in in a sense, because of new developments in technology and new developments in like, like the way that war was waged. Um, so you know, missiles that could auto correct their course and submarines that could do the same. Um, essentially, because you have a linear system, which is go straight to this point. But if in the cybernetic system basically the 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 missile or the what have you whatever it is becomes self-referential in the sense that it's constantly like course correcting i have a goal am i still on the best path to meet that goal if not i'm correcting um and you see the remnants of cybernetics now in the fear that super hierarchical organizations like the military have for decentralized um, challenges to their power because it's difficult to control and predict.
0: So that's definitely interesting because in the 21st century, particularly in the age of information, in a post-internet world, there are very big challenges that are posed to large hierarchical systems, obviously. And something like the U.S. military is going up against insurgent forces, which aren't necessarily one fixed group defending a static position or a static, um, or defending like a static objective that the U.S. military has to go up against. Rather, it's people who are blending in with, the blending in with the local population, people who are using things like the internet to go out and recruit people and using things like the internet to inspire people to go off and act of their own accord and not necessarily have to be part of this one rigid system that could easily be identified and attacked, then destroyed. Rather, people are seeing, like, for example, ISIS propaganda videos, and those videos might inspire them to go off and carry out a lone wolf attack in the United States or in another country or something like that. And these attacks aren't nearly as easy to account for and prevent in the future because there's no... You would essentially have to completely destroy the force you're going up against because any one person could take up the call to go and act in accordance with whatever group is advocating for attacking whatever country, whatever system, whatever ideology. And the U.S. military is freaking out about that because we see, like, with the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, at this point... The U.S. military is starting to admit, even though we've had perpetual warfare or seemingly perpetual warfare for the past 17 years, they're starting to admit that they didn't really have any one solid objective, any one logical objective for what they were trying to do over there. And given the force they're going up against, there is is not any logical objective that you could come up with and say, this is the core tenet of what we're doing with this war over in this country. Because... They are just creating more and more insurgents. By going out there and creating chaos in these countries, they are inspiring people to come and take up arms and replace the people that they'd killed previously. And there's no central leader, central command that they can take out to prevent these attacks from happening. It's just different cells of people attacking. So I think that's very interesting as far as it inspiring them to have to innovate and have to change their approach because they realize that warfare had changed and we are no longer in a situation where it's one large army which you can easily take out if you destroy the top of the hierarchy. Instead, you have more horizontal approaches to insurgency, to guerrilla warfare and things like that.
1: Right. So to to bring that back to complexity a little bit. I think you have this you always have this push-pull factor of this drive to decrease and increase complexity in any given context. Um, so, and there's benefits to each one. So like institutions like the US military, like their drive is to make information more simple and more homogeneous because then it's easier to control that information. And so if you look at like industrialized food production, for example, what they did was they made um, like like pigs or cows or apples, tomatoes, what have you, more homogeneous, so that they could be produced in the most environments and sold for the most mass. The flip side of that is you have, you know, heterogeneous systems or like a variety of information. And it's a stronger, more stable system because, you know, Going back to the food analogy, if, if we're to have, like, a crop that's knocked out, we have plenty of others. And even the same one might be genetically different enough that it doesn't matter. So the thing about institutions and bureaucracies like the military is that they are constantly trying to make information more simple. And so, you know, I think you identified this really well. Like, what happens when they run up against... Like information that's like too complex for them to really like deal with. You know, they're using the same hammer to try to hit all these different uh, nails that are popping up. The idea of complexity, it could be taken in one of two ways. It could be taken in the sense that, well, we should be building up bigger bodies, bigger institutions to sort of make information more simple. Or we can say, well, if we have these you know, loosely connected, decentralized networks of information that their function is probably more resilient. But then you have the flip side of them being resilient with, like, the possibility of drift. So, like, drift away from the original purpose of whatever it happens to be. Um, And with institutions, they're sort of, like, set up to perpetuate what they do. So they're sort of, like pros and cons to each approach. You look at fascism also, for example. Like fascism, what fascism is really all about is about making information even more homogenous with strict hierarchical institutions. And that's like, to me, that's the binary opposite of anarchy or stateless communism because that's about removing these hierarchies and like making information more diffused. So, and I think part of it is you look at it from this like complexity approach and like a biological approach, like either approach where it's more hierarchical or less so can be like a biologically sound way for like humanity as like one entity to like continue. Um, And it's up to us to say, well, well, Obviously,
0: fascism like can work, but it's shit. So <laughs> That's funny. So in such a dynamic world where we have um, such large, all-encompassing advancements in technology that go to influence and inform how we interact with each other and how human society functions, we, as you said, we have a choice. Are we going to try and consolidate everything? Under um, incorporate everything into one system, which is uh, all powerful and really simplifies everything down in the interest of having exerting complete control over everything. Or do we embrace that in this world where we have the ability to communicate with people across the entire globe and we have a global economy and we truly do have the ability to interact with anybody in the world at any point in time we're not limited by our geography anymore. We are not limited by so many other things that before the age of the internet, we weren't capable of. We have to choose how we want to restructure our political systems and our economy, the global inco- the global economy in order to account for these changes. So what do you think what do you think it would look like if the, not just the U.S. government, but if governments around the world attempted to come together and use this use this approach of considering complexity theory to analyze how we are all now connected and we can't really claim that there's any reason for us to separate ourselves within artificial borders and artificial laws because things that happen in the United States affect people all across the world and people are incorporated into this one system which currently the U.S. is at the head of but you know that could always change and whether or not there's one large power at the top could always change. How do we come to how do we come to reconcile these changes in the world and increases in how, I mean, for lack of a better word, for how com- how much more complex human society and human interaction has become? Right. So
1: I think that's sort of, that's the conflict that we're seeing globally right now is in terms of both information and resources, the world has never been so interconnected as it is now. Um, and we are already seeing how interconnected, you know, the ecosystem is, for example, that certain things that we do over here are affecting people elsewhere. And that just creates this like avalanche of, of effects that is like very difficult to account for. And so we're seeing like globally this split between, well, there's these like far left and these far right insurgencies, um, all over the globe, you know, tons of, far-right leaders coming to power and also much stronger far-left movements. And I think a big reason of why these are all happening at the same time is because conditions are ripe everywhere because they're all interconnected. Um, And especially now with the advance of the internet, with the advance of technologies that can make a post-scarcity world possible for everyone, now is really the time to... To start having revolts against governments and have mutual aid networks set up between different communities, um, and and I think what's interesting is that there's international relations scholars who are neoliberal who are using complexity theory already to look at world affairs in this way, um, you know, because it's all about information and systems and if you take if you take countries as like the smallest building block of information and you say oh well countries are interacting in a complex way and you know for example like sometimes this country acts as like an imperialist country and sometimes it's being taken advantage of and sometimes it's hard to tell like like people are using this as an analysis um and i think that's partly like the the global capitalist um system which subsumes new like new radical approaches to things and co-ops them so like you know the military is using complexity theory to try to control what information reaches which people It's trying to control like the actions of large crowds of people and to an extent like they also have the tools to do this more than at any time in history it's like, you know, the internet is a tool and it can help either one of us, but really we wouldn't be able to like move towards a better world without vast information distribution channels. Um, but it also leaves us room for a new, um, more dystopian world as well.
0: So essentially, it seems that at this point in time, in, in the information era, The state is increasingly, increasingly becoming obsolete, I think, or it has the opportunity to become obsolete. And it's not just the fact that we are in the information era. It's also living in the time when the effects of human involvement in the environment has resulted in very, very severe consequences with climate change. And we have states which are are no longer able to... I think by nature, those are the same thing like we couldn't
1: have the sort of information spreading capabilities that we have now without having already exploited the environment. If you like, if you look at the industrial age, which, and if you look at like biomass and also you can see this in GDP, like you just see this huge increase in human, like processing power in terms of like new innovation and inventions and science, like with, industrialization because we were able to produce things to scale because we're able to like have these great supply chains and it's about the industrial the industrial age was about distributing information and so like yes we also have the internet which is about distributing like like another it's like a more direct or in also about distributing information um so yeah partly what i'm saying is like those two things like have to come together
0: okay yeah, that, that, that's interesting. And that makes a lot of sense, definitely. So we're at this point where we have one of two options, either to consolidate everything, or to embrace the increasingly complex nature of the world and of human society. Do you think that there's any particular reason to believe that one option is going to win out over the other. I mean, obviously we know which solution you and I would prefer is implemented, Mm -hmm. but is there any reason to think that we are going to embrace these changes and try to adapt to how dynamic this world has become? Well, I think that's partly connected to
1: the question you had asked earlier, which is about, you know, the degree that we've utilized the environment um and I think personally, there's there's room for a great amount of optimism as well as despair. And that's the thing about binaries is like, at present, because the world is so interconnected, we have the capability that like no previous generation of leftists has have had. Like, we could have, a global shift in the economy that just wasn't present before the economy was so globalized. Like it's in part because capitalism has reached this stage that we could finally overthrow it. Um, but the, and, and, and the flip, but the flip side of that is that if we don't, so like, like we're currently in like the earth's like sixth mass extinction. Um, and if you take a complexity, look at what are the health factors like what's been going on with people especially people in industrialized countries to their health what's been going on with the ecosystems that we depend on it's really not looking good and so it's socialism or bar- barbarism like Rosa Luxemburg said like either either we do what needs to be done to save the planet and to save civilization or like there's a real possibility for like 80 90% of human beings to just like die in the next hundred years
0: and uh obviously the most unfortunate part about this is that the people who are largely least responsible for the damage done to the planet are going to be the very first ones who face the effects of what um what essentially the west the first world uh as some people might like to call it has accomplished some might say but on the other hand what they've doomed the rest of humanity to Right and
1: so I think a great example of this is is the group of people who the national media are currently calling the migrant caravan um, is these there's a lot of people who are being driven out of their homes because a of you know actual imperialism that the United States intervened in national politics and it's very violent for them there, but also because of famine and a lack of access to water and food and a lack of access to jobs. Um, So we're already seeing the influence of climate change refugees coming through and, and this like array of factors that we don't really have control over is sort of producing very predictable results of, you know, well, the planet's becoming uninhabitable. And so the countries that haven't experienced all of this devastation yet are closing off and becoming more strict and hierarchical in terms of who is allowed into that space, who is allowed access to those resources. The thing is, people will die if they don't get in, if they don't if they aren't accepted into the system that has resources. Um but because they don't have a choice, because they're so desperate, like people are going to keep trying to breach the system of the United States, of other industrialized countries. And at a certain point, either it's another binary. If at a certain point, it'll either be, you know, mass genocide or the borders of states are meaningless, become meaningless because of the rates of people and other sorts of information flowing through.
0: So obviously we've had, Over the past, I mean, just in the 21st century, increasingly and increasingly, there has been this narrative on the immigration issue, which, I mean, I can remember ever since I was a little kid, obviously, I'm not sure what the general sentiment was like before I was born. But as long as I've been aware, there has definitely been an increase in how much we focused on this immigration issue. And for a very long time, I didn't realize the implications of that conversation that we've been having in this country, particularly uh, how the right has been approaching it in this country, and now we've seen in now we've seen in the age of Trump and post-Trump America, when white supremacy, which has been slipping and its ability to exert its influence has been slipping, it's trying to reassert itself, and that's truly what, in many ways, the election of Trump was, and as as their leader is now in power. He has largely <clears throat> he has indulged their desires for a higher sense of security, and they recognize that, or they perceive the immigration issue to be a threat to national security because they think the country is going to be overrun with people who are criminals or terrorists or whatever other racist misconceptions they have about these people, but. One thing they are hitting on properly is that there is a crisis that is coming, and the immigration crisis, while they see it as something to – they see it as being representative of white genocide or all these other just misled conclusions for what this problem represents and why it's here, the question – The issue still stands that we are having a real immigration crisis on this planet. And the reason for that, of course, is because capitalism and U.S. hegemony has gone around and destroyed this planet and extracted as many resources as possible for the interests of capital at the expense of whatever it took. And largely, normally that was at the expense of people in other countries, particularly in the global south. But now we have these people whose governments cannot handle how unsustainable this world economy is and this mode of production is. And now as we see countries being ravaged by natural disasters and governments not being able to properly allocate the resources to their people, immig- uh- <clears throat> People are taking it into their own hands to go and find someplace else where there is uh, more stability with the government. And obviously in the United States, that's something we have because the U.S. has assured that it could strengthen its iron grip on this territory and really the, as much of the planet as it can. But... Now, with all these people coming in, the right has really woken up that there is a problem. Now, they are, of course, just very adamant in denying the reality of climate change. So there's all sorts of other things. They say that these immigrants are jealous of us or things like that. But like I said earlier, the issue still stands that... We have to deal with this crisis. There is a mass mobilization of people from largely the global south to places like the west, like the United States, and we have to reconcile with this problem because we are responsible for it. And that is something which I don't think the leadership of this country is truly ready to accept at this point in time. So before we go any further, I want to ask you for just a quick working definition of what complexity theory is from your perspective.
1: The way I would describe it is specific to me. There's no real singular definition of complexity theory, partly because it's so wide-reaching and and ranging. Um, My understanding of it, my personal complexity theory, is that it deals with information and the way that information travels and is distributed. And, so, and, and when I'm talking about information, I'm not just talking about like books or, or words. I'm talking about everything that we can perceive that we interpret as information. So everything we can categorize and everything that can result from everything possible that we can categorize. And so by nature, complexity is a, is a wide-reaching field that is about All this interplay of different dynamics of information. So, a wind stream is an example of information and the way that it travels and how it can be different. And, you know, language is another really great example of the ways that we transmit information um, and the ways that, you know, uh, regional dialects change over time and how words come in and out. Of existence and the way that languages interact with each other when they originally are separate it's 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 a theory of information and so like that like how did that information happen to like look that way um, so there's no firm science that you can say well if we plug in these things we'll get this linear result it's more of a matter of well there's all these things happening and like we think Possibly it'll result in this because it's too difficult to say that for sure
0: Okay, and when we were talking before uh, We started recording you said something about how complexity theory can be More easily understood if comparing it to something like intersectionality
1: Yeah, I think intersectionality is a great point to bring up complexity because I think it's really real for a lot of people so you I'm sure people have heard of different identities granting certain like like privileges or a lack thereof in different situations. And having multiple identities sort of like adds some complexity to that. Because if you were to have say like one identity that only meant one thing in all places, then you would always know what that was and what that meant. But because you have multiple identities, sometimes they vary in importance. And sometimes they vary in like reaction. Um, so, like the 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 complex interplay of your different identities is you interacting with different systems. So there's a system around like the ident the system around like the idea of whiteness and like what that means within a given context or a given culture. And there's like corresponding um, systems of of any. Any given category that a group could give itself, or that others would give that group. So, that, and and every single other, there's a different system. So, like, there's like all these different microsystems that are essentially about the same information, but from like the perspective of different components of that system. Um, and so, so when you have a certain identity, it'll play a certain way in a certain space but it's really about the complex interplay of your identities in that space and the complex interplay of cultures that are also in that space does that make sense
0: yeah no that makes sense that's very cool and i think that's a definitely probably a more accessible way for people to understand it because this topic is uh I mean, just in me researching it, it was a little bit hard for me to understand in the first place what exactly, like, what the fuck it was that you were trying to, like, teach me about. And uh, even after we first started talking about it, I still wasn't exactly sure what it all encompassed. But now understanding that in a way it is all encompassing, like, it just, I understand how it was a little bit too vast for me to understand at first, but I think it's easier to comprehend when comparing it with something like intersectionality, because like you said, that is something that is very real for a lot of people. And, uh... People understand how being black might be might mean one thing. It might result in one thing. But um, the neutral position that somebody thinks of black oppression through anyway is through the lens of like a black man, a black male. But being a woman means that you are oppressed and feel the effects of the systems of oppression in this world in another way. But if you put those two together, somebody who is a black woman experiences something that is totally unique from simply being a black man or from being a white woman. And I think that's important that a lot of people, um, a lot of people can connect to that idea through that. And I think that's a very apt analogy that'll resonate with a lot of people.
1: Yeah. And I think those are, you know, race and gender identity are two very big, very notable categories that a lot of people get sectioned off into, but because, part of the way that this thinking happens and in the way that oppressions exist and the way that we respond to them is through like repeated interactions that we see other people do that we don't think consciously of very much. And so as a result of that, there could be categories that people are dividing us up into that aren't even like recognized as categories. Like think of, for example, the way that like ableism Like that wasn't something that existed or that people talked about like 30, 40 years ago, but because it exists, now you can name it as an oppression.
0: Yeah. No, that's, no, that's a good point. And that's, um, that's something that's important to consider. I remember reading, I believe it was an article about how the term sexual harassment came around and how before, um, and sexual harassment specifically to the workplace and how, before that term was around, it was something that was hard for people to even, uh, primarily women, obviously, to articulate what had happened to them, and it's something that, in a way, it gives power to the system that is oppressing you because you do not have the language, you don't, you do not have the tools to even identify it, and that's the very first step in being able to fight oppression. And there was, a, there was a. Lawsuit against this company where the term sexual harassment came out of, and when women went and were talking to each other and realized that they all had the same experiences, obviously, like they all experienced this specific attitude and this specific environment, hostile environment in the workplace. It just made—I'm um, I'm losing my train of thought a little bit, but it just—it—it it kind of brought together their ability to be able to identify and fight against. These and fight against conditions that had been present this entire time, obviously. It wasn't something that came about because they put a name to it. But putting a name to it allowed them to fight specifically against that issue.
1: I think that brings up a really good point because it provides illumination, actually, to one of the biggest debates on the left. Um, You know, saying categorizing something as a thing sort of plays two roles like it'll both allow you to operate within a system but it would perpetuate the system so like there's a system of sexual harassment for example and like us being able to name it and like make people accountable for it that's good but it sort of creates this like this culture around like where where this is expected to happen um, mm-hmm. And and the flip side of that is to deconstruct the idea of like genders and masculinity and other things to, to deconstruct the very idea of these things existing um, like culturally, not as an individual because it's system wide. Yeah. Um, and so there's different approaches on the left in terms of, like, different sorts of feminism, for example. Like, the feminism of, like, reinforcing, like, existing, like, like safety measures and, like, for women, like, reinforcing the idea of what it means to be a woman when the alternative is to, like, tear down the idea of what it is to be a woman. Yeah. And so you can sort of see how, like, that leads to different reinforcing, different
0: types of ways
1: that oppression against women
0: is enforced. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I was recently watching you know the YouTuber ContraPoints. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so she recently put out a video about pronouns and because she is a trans YouTuber, she's talked about pronouns and um pronouns and just connecting to other other topics like issues specific specifically to the trans community. And in this latest video, she was talking about how there are people who, for their pronouns, instead of somebody who was born uh, with society perceiving them to be a specific gender, rather than being disillusioned with their gender identity because they wanted to be identified as the opposite, so to speak, gender, they wish to go by gender-neutral pronouns, uh, people who prefer to be referred to as they rather than he or she. And how this is, in a way, she was saying um, a totally different and she said more radical uh, was her perspective way of going about addressing the uh, problem of how fixed and archaic our perceptions of gender are. And that somebody who refers to themselves as they and identifies as they, not he or she, is somebody who, in a way, is going about it from a more radical perspective in trying to attack the very structure of gender in the first place. Like you said, uh, tear down the idea of what it means to be a woman, attacking the structure of gender in the first place and how, yeah, there's definitely, like you said, there's like two perspectives on two like predominant and fighting or battling perspectives. I mean, you know, obviously everybody is aware of uh TERFs, trans-exclusionary, uh, radical feminists and- And it mirrors fascist
1: thinking that like, pe- I think people have picked up on that it's bioessentialist, and it fascism. Fascism is about more homogenous information, creating a more homogenous flow of information that's top down, and that's exactly what trans exclusionary feminists do. Is they create a homogenous idea of what it is to be a woman, and they're leaving people out. And like the whole idea of being on the on the left is
0: to bring everyone into the idea of like what is us. Damn, I like I like the way you categorize that. Uh, just as far as with the greater the greater project is and the underlying motivation for us building this movement that we are.
1: Okay. So you brought up a question about fascism and I think fascism is really interesting as a display of complexity because fascists themselves view fascism as like a body, a body politic that's connected to lands. Um, Fascists feel Connected to the land in a way that capitalists don't, and connected to like history, even if it's a manufactured history, a mythology, exactly. And and part of that mythology is that each person has their place, and they're kicking a lot of people out because they don't have a place. But for the people who remain, that place is hierarchical, and so it's positioned in the frame of being a body. And a body is a system in which different parts are autonomous and and play a role, but there's certain parts which are viewed as being more important by the fascists. And because the nation is viewed as a body, they view other bodies as distinct and separate from them and as potential aggressors. And I was actually reading about fascism recently and it was a very interesting take that fascism is essentially like colonialism coming back to the source mm-hmm. and then spreading out once again as like a more severe form um, and I think if you look at the United States that's a really interesting way of like conceptualizing it because the United States has had the most oppressive colonial rule for the past, at least since the second world war. And because our bureaucracies are trained in how to oppress and categorize people in this way, that same logic is turned back on our own civilians. And either the empire collapses under its own weight, or it expands out once again to seek more resources.
0: But <laughs> well, shit, those are really our only two options. Those are the only two places we can go. yeah, I'm not fucking ready for that. But uh, that's something we all have to be ready for. Because uh, I think what you were saying about... Where, where did you read that?
1: It was that... R- article about Russian or liberals and their historical relationship with Russia and the Soviet union, that they were talking about fascism
0: in that way. Okay. All right. That's interesting because I heard, um, I heard somebody, one, one way I heard it be described as was, um, colonialism being aimed at the metropole is how it was like describing, like very similar to what you were saying. I, it was probably it probably came from the same person. I I heard it like secondhand on a podcast, but I think that's one of the most. I I think that's one of the most um poignant ways I've heard it be described, and that really makes sense to me about the motivations for fascism and why it exists, because it is it is it is the result of an empire in decay. Obviously, I mean people very frequently say fascism is capitalism in decay, and it does take uh, conditions of collapse for people. Uh, well, just as conditions of collapse come in large societies, large empires, you see these sorts of extremist ideas trying to reassert, like I said earlier, reassert white supremacy, but reassert whatever their specific notion of what their, what their power is back onto society, which they see as slipping.
1: I think if you look at... The global political economy as an ecosystem it's interesting to think of what happens in an ecosystem when one group becomes too dominant is after a while they've extracted whatever resources that they feed off of feed off of and then like their population declines and i think that if you look at like an empire like the united states that's partly what we did and partly the goal of colonialism is to go off in search of more resources to keep growing the center without like being able to have those resources in the center. Um, and it collapses when like globally those resources are too depleted. So it's almost like the extermination is to get rid of people who are also using resources because the population is going down to a different state that's, like, more relevant to the environment.
0: That's really, uh, inevitably, that's the direction we're headed in. I mean, now in the 21st century, we see things like the fires that are raging through California, and we see now, you know, the next biggest hurricane comes uh, every other couple weeks, it seems like, at this point. And just as more and more countries, more populations are so heavily devastated by these sorts of, uh, storms that used to be anomalies, but now have become the norm, governments are going to collapse and governments are not going to be able to properly allocate the resources to deal with this crisis. And so we see this
1: is already happening. Trump just today tweeted something like, I'm not sending California any aid for their fires.
0: Oh, no, I saw that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, this is it's happening in real time. It's happening in real time right in front of us. It's fucking scary, man. It is really scary. It's no longer i mean just the time the time for us to and just to be clear like if
1: if the world was organized into mutual aid networks, we would have the resources to be able to still keep population like relatively stable. It's more the matter of because people are greedy and like resources are not distributed according to need that yeah. we have this
0: problem, yeah. I mean, you said to me uh, when we were having a conversation a couple of days ago about how we, the human population, I mean, but really, obviously, it's not everybody's responsible for this. It's the system of capitalism uh, wastes a third of the global food production every year. I
1: think that might be, that might just be referring to the U.S. or it might be even a bigger But it's something ridiculous. I think it's like the U.S. wastes like a third or a quarter or half of the food we produce because it just can't be sold at the price it's needed to. And actually, it's getting worse because of Trump's tariffs. Like we're wasting, because the U.S. produces a lot of bulk food that goes elsewhere that's used for like industrial purposes. So like to raise animals in other places Um, and also corn to be, made into so many other things. So yeah, Um, food is piling up and we're not selling it. And so it's getting tossed because it's not even meant to go to market here.
0: And yet many people would claim that this this is the best that humanity is capable of, that capitalism is the most efficient and best way for us to manage our resources. That assumes really that institutions are
1: capable of managing resources. And complexity science would show us that people who are most adept at managing resources are the people who handle them directly, aka the workers, should be making decisions because essentially that's why democracy, why socialism works, is if people have direct control, they will be better at decision-making than an abstract, faraway body
0: will. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Professor uh, Dr. Richard Wolf when he has a lot of... I don't know if you've ever seen his YouTube lectures where he speaks about... Uh, okay, yeah, so Dr. Richard Wolf speaks about... Like, he has a lecture on YouTube breaking down um, Marx's Capital and just uh, the first volume and trying to make it a more accessible... I mean, it's multiple, like, 50-minute videos, but a more accessible way for people to be able to um, come to understand this work without having to read the thing because for a lot of people now, just, like, in today's day and age, like, people aren't going to read it. And he's trying to make this theory... Uh, more digestible and more accessible for people in the digital age, which I think is a very good thing. But he, oh fuck, what was I saying? Oh, when he is trying to describe to his students, why you would want to change our uh, economic modes of production to include the workers and have the workers be the ones who are at the forefront in making decisions is that we in America, especially, we recognize democracy as something that is extremely important, like vital to have a properly functioning government? And why wouldn't that be also applied to the workplace if it's something that we have in our government?
1: I think it's because our cultural concept of what democracy is doesn't actually include democracy.
0: Oh, no, definitely not. (laughs) Definitely not. It's something that we... People in America perceive themselves to be very committed to the idea of democracy, but trying to actually enfranchise more people and in more encompassing ways is not something that people are actually receptive to in this country whatsoever
1: it's really funny when you think of neoconservatives who would say we want to bring democracy to Iraq or or wherever else when democracy isn't something we have and even if we did it's not something you can force on people yeah it's just a really funny justification for imperialism
0: yeah (laughs) yeah because the american uh notion of democracy is that american business interests are expanded and are advantaged from whatever whatever action or development happens
1: yeah and i'm i'm glad you brought that up because there's been a global shift of empire away from nations states towards transnational corporations because It's sort of accepted within the global liberal worldview that you can't just go around adding colonies to your nation's size. So what happens instead is corporations go abroad and exploit exploit other communities for resources and, you know, slave labor. And then they import the profits back into, like, tax havens and the countries where they're from. So, like the dominant mode of imperialism is coming through corporations, but like its essentially capitalism, because they're also paying the states to do it with them
0: yeah i mean <laughs> these these neo these neoconservatives definitely understand i mean obviously the ones that power these people, they're fucking ruthless, they're bloodthirsty they they understand exactly what they're doing, but for people who still identify with these things, the people who are being influenced by those people, I think they still definitely have a little bit of an innate understanding that um, they like to lick boots and that when their boss is winning uh, to them, that means they're winning and that ultimately what they care about at the end of the day is for America to win by going out and dominating the global economy by any means necessary. They
1: might think we're really out there giving them democracy though. Like, you know, like setting up, well, this is how you do elections and like, we're training, you. I, like they really could think that. Like just this is how you set up institute, this is how you set up American style institutions. Like it's definitely like unique to our culture and it would be something that you would have to really teach someone on like how to set up an American corporation or how to set up an American like local government. Um, so you could imagine that conservatives could think that that might be what's happening there, but it just doesn't bear any relation to reality.
0: No, there's definitely that to it. They're, they're certainly deluded to some extent about how it works. But I don't know. I'm not i am not sure about to what extent they're aware of what they're doing. So we've been going on for a little bit now talking about all this stuff. And I think we have had a nice conversation, something that I hope everybody can learn from. Uh, Sam, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Uh, do you have anything that you want to plug? Any like social media accounts or anything like that where people can find you or your work? I'm working on a website, which will be up
1: soon. Until then, uh, you can find me on Twitter as leftistlegume,
0: at leftistlegume on Twitter. It's, it's at pregnantmemedad.
1: I don't know if that's <laughs> weird to say. <laughs> I made it when I was, I was 18. I was I was a little edge lord when I was 18. So okay,
0: that's fair. That's hey, a lot of people were. All right, but uh, thank you very much for coming on. And I hope everybody has learned a little something from this conversation and hopefully has been exposed to a new school of thought and theory that they wouldn't have been otherwise. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Alternative Black is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please rate five stars and subscribe on iTunes and like on SoundCloud to help the show grow. If you want to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter at ALT underscore BLAC and this show will be updated with new episodes on a weekly basis. Thank you.